Talk to you with some conference announcements before we get into this week's episode. First, Compose Conference will be taking place Thursday, February 4th and Friday, February 5th in New York City. Compose is a conference for typed functional programmers focused specifically on Haskell, OCaml, F-Sharp, SML, and related technologies. To find out more and to register, visit www.composeconference.org. On February 18th and 19th in Krakow, Poland, Lambda Days will be taking place and registration is now open. Visit lambdadays.org to find out more or to register and to make sure to use code FUNKYGEEKS4 to win. That's F-U-N-K-Y-G-E-E-K-Z, the number 4, D-W-I-N, for 10% off registration. Right after that, on February 20th, Closure D will be taking place in Berlin. Closure D is an independent, non-profit conference from the Closure community for the Closure community. Focus points will be interesting developments and ideas in the global Closure community, as well as introductory-level talks highlighting the fun aspects of learning and messing with Closure. Visit www.closured.de to find out more. Elixir Days will be taking place March 4th in St. Augustine, Florida. Elixir Days is a one-day conference with a nearly full day of talks and a helping hack session to close it out. The CFP is open through January 15th, and early bird registration is open as well. Visit elixirdays.com, that's elixirdaze.com, to find out more. Erlang Factory San Francisco will be taking place on the 10th and 11th of March, with training on the 7th through the 9th of March, and the 14th through the 16th of March. Tickets to the conference are available now. Visit www.erlang-factory.com slash sfbay2016 to register and to find out more. LambdaConf 2016 will be taking place May 26th through the 29th in Boulder, Colorado. The call for proposals is now open and will close on January 15th. Visit lambdaconf.us to keep an eye out for updates. And if you know of any other conferences around functional programming, email contact at functionalgeekery.com and I will be happy to announce them. Lastly, if you're enjoying Functional Geekery, please help spread the word. If you would leave a rating and or review on iTunes or your favorite podcast directory, or even share your favorite episodes on social media, I need your help to spread the word about Functional Geekery. And if there are any guests or topics that you want to hear from or about, please reach out and email contact at functionalgeekery.com and I will put them on my notes for future episode ideas. Thank you for listening and for all your support. Welcome to Functional Geekery. I'm Rose Proctor, and this week with us we have Claudia Dopioslash. Claudia, would you mind telling everyone a little bit about yourself? Hi, I'm Claudia Dopioslash, as you said, and I am a game developer and a functional programmer, and I also write on a website called Lambda Cat, and I do some talks at some conferences. So I had seen you just floating around the Twitterverse with a bunch of other stuff when I was kind of looking around Closure and keeping an eye on the Closure community, and I saw you do some stuff there. And I've just seen you pop up here and there and then saw you had your Lambda Cat. So I wanted to get you on and just talk about that because it winds up you're doing a lot more than just Closure now. So I wanted to kind of get your feeling about what languages you've played with, how you got into functional programming, and how you found some of the contrast of different languages because you seem to have a pretty decent variety of different functional languages that you've got experience with. So I guess just to start with, how did you get into functional programming? What was your story of being exposed to it the first time and then how you took your deep dive into it? So actually, I first got into Lisp by reading my programming languages book from college. And it was just at the end. And I saw it and I just liked it for some reason. Where everyone runs away, I really liked 
the silly parentheses. So I started with Common Lisp on that road. I also did iOS development and I worked on, as an iOS developer. So the other stuff used to be in the background until recently. So from Common Lisp, I went to Clojure because Clojure was invented in about 2007, 2008, where I got into it. And from Clojure, I learned functional programming, and then it took me a lot of time to get to grips with it because I've always done object-oriented and imperative. That took me a while. Also, not working in functional programming makes it everything slower. But I really like to learn languages as well. I like to change. I get bored. So while I was looking, I was doing some closure, I was also doing other languages like Scheme and tried some Ruby, some Python, everything I could get my hands on, really. And after that, so I worked as an iOS developer and then a startup developer, which basically involved many languages like Java and JavaScript and Python and Ruby. It was a good setup like that. And then I got into games development. So I used Unity and Boo, which is another nice language. It's sort of a Python on the .NET, but it's also very good for metaprogramming. And then I got a job at Starship, which is a games company in Liverpool. And there it was all C-sharp because there were many people <laughs> programming there were many programmers while before I'm, I'd almost always been a sole programmer so uh, we had to use a language everybody knew and everybody liked enough but I also helped the closure dojo locally so we have a closure dojo in Liverpool so that's how I started getting properly into the functional programming community because I had always been a bit of a loner so from there I went into conferences and I also encountered Elm, which ties into this because one of the interests I have is game development and making game engines which use functional programming, which is not overly done. At least using them for commercial game development is not much done. So when I saw Elm, I thought that that might work because it was clean enough, it was functional enough, and it was quite elegant. But still, it didn't have the difficulty that maybe learning Haskell has for someone who comes from very strong OOP conviction. So now I'm doing Elm and Erlang for work, which is very good for me. And yeah, I'm getting to grips with all the strongly the, well, typing system. I, I, I had used it before. Right. Maybe one of the biggest differences between closure and something like Almor Askel is the type system. And I was quite used to the Lisp style. So that was the biggest jump for me. But I was also used to use any other language that came to me. But so it wasn't a big of a jump syntactically because I'm, I'm the other way around. People usually like one syntax and they hate everything else or some. <laughs> some sub subset of that, but I really love Lisp syntax and I have to make do with everything else. So That's one of the reasons I wanted to get you on was just that experience with the Lisps, uh, with the closure, and then you mentioned Elm and you mentioned before, and I've seen some stuff about a little bit of Haskell, Erlang and Elixir now, 
and some interest in type theory as well. So it was one of those things kind of broad, kind of interesting. So when you were first getting into closure, what did that look like? Was that, you mentioned the dojo, was that mainly? That was closure. Yeah. So when you were first getting into closure, it was all on the side and it was just, there was no real professional work on it. And it was just your active hobby that you were learning. Yeah, it was me and Simon Holgate, which is a local programmer and scientist, which is really into closure. And the job of doing a, a closure dojo is mainly just having a talk every month and keep promoting it locally. And so is that just you'd go with a bunch of different problems in? and It was more about, we, we did alternate between them. So we would have maybe one time it would be a talk. And one time it would be a kata or something more complicated. But unless you have the, the number of people which a number of people which has professional experience of functional programming enclosure, it's quite hard to get anything more complicated than a kata going. And Liverpool is it's not very small, but it's not huge as well. So we do have a good enough number of people interested in functional programming, but we don't make huge numbers. Because I know you were also doing some, I've seen your, some of your posts about doing some closure on the Android operating systems. And I had seen some other stuff around it just kind of come here and there in the past. But what have you done with closure and Android specifically? And how did that environment kind of work and come about? So I wanted to do a talk about it because I thought it was interesting. I thought more people could use it and they have some Android experience as well. So that didn't come from nowhere. So I thought, well, let's use the excellent work that the Android Closure guys did. Um, I think they started in 2012. And last year, it was really when it started to be usable to make a proper Android app. So I thought I should, well, I'm sort of like interfacing different things. So I thought, well, I know some Android, I know Closure and not many people have worried about making something with this. So I thought I would just promote it and have a talk. I thought it would be interesting, mainly. I sort of have many interests and I chase them unequally. <laughs> so I'm a bit all over the place. So I did the talk. It was a functional cuts and then when, well, people were happy and they have quite a florid meetup, functional meetups in general uh, in, in Dublin. So there were many people interested in this. I didn't make a commercial app with it. I have a few ideas for it, but it takes time. So, well, if at any point I'll make an Android app, I want to make it in Clojure and I know it's possible. And it's actually, well, the problems it used to have was the startup times, but we really worked on them. So now it's good enough. It's plenty good for commercial use. So when you were working on that and getting into that, how mature did it seem? You mentioned there were some startup time issues, but what was it like working in Clojure developing an Android app? Since you said you had done some iOS and other development, what was the story like of actually building something in Clojure that you were able to get enough feel for to be able to talk on at a present at a conference or user group? The main hurdle is actually setting it up because Android keeps changing. And the effort on Android closure is mainly volunteer based. So you might have to solve a few problems that have come up since last time it was looked at. But after that, the main advantage is the workflow is much better because 
if you do Android development, you have to, if you try on device, you have to compile and then run, compile and then run. And that depending on how big your program is, if, it, if it's very small, it's not so much of a problem, but if it's very big, it's quite annoying. While in Clojure, you can just get the REPL and pretty much do most things on the fly. So you can try out everything and you save a lot of time. I also do some Unity work. And Unity is even worse because if you target an Android device, it has to compile everything and then run in the same way, but you are compiling whole Unity as well. So it's even worse. It's quite bad for iterations and having any kind of flow. So I think Clojure really helps with that. And there is also a Clojure Unity effort, which is quite nice. And it has the same advantage. You have a REPL and you can just use it and see how things change. It's called Arcadia. And at the FPX conference in London, they demoed having Emacs inside Unity on an Oculus Rift. So you could program in VR on a REPL. That was quite impressive. So is the REPL something that you're actually running on the phone or is that part of the development of IDE and you're just communicating back and forth with the phone? It, it runs on the phone. The Clojure REPL runs on the phone and then you communicate with it from the computer. So it's actually executing the code on the phone. That's even nicer because I've seen some stuff where just even doing the browser testing and capturing the browser, you're kind of having to do that with just JavaScript. But the fact that you're actually able to run the Clojure on the Android device in the REPL there, instead of having the REPL and kind of like making out remote calls to the closure, seems like it would be an actual pretty big advantage. It is. I think it is. It's a bit of a shame that no like corporate sponsors have shown up for Closure Android because I think the experience is quite nice and they have already put a lot of work into it. Alex Yakushev, mostly, I think. So you fell in love with Lisp. And you moved to Clojure, and you mentioned at the beginning, kind of going back to your overview, was that you found it as one of your programming languages book in college. So was that just something that wasn't really covered? Did the teacher cover that, or was that something that you were just reading? I was just reading. No, I I didn't actually start it yet. I was just looking at my books, and I looked at the programming languages book from start to finish, just going through it. So it was just love at first sight, you could say. So essentially you picked it up all on your own then and didn't actually have an experience of someone trying to explain Lisp as the teacher trying to teach a whole course and kind of give the overview of what... No, I just picked it up on my own. Uh, There there wasn't actually any Lisp taught unless in some special courses or seminars. You know, the funny thing is maybe that Eugenio Moggi actually teaches at that university where I study, which is the University of Genoa. So there's an Haskell link there, but it's terribly underused. As far as I know, it doesn't teach Haskell or anything advanced, which is a bit of a shame. So you fell in love with the Lisps and you fell in love with their syntax. What was it about the Lisps that drove you? Was it just, you like the syntax? You like the elegance of the way the language was the data structure or the macros or what was what was some of that stuff that when you saw it made you think that despite what everybody thinks about wow this is weird looking there's a ton of parentheses here what made you fall in love with that list when you started getting into it i think it's somehow how um water says lisp is a language that was wasn't invented it 
was discovered almost. So I could see from the structure of it, even if I didn't realize just instantly at the time, but I could figure out by intuition that this was something very embedded in the structure of nature almost. So I did like the syntax. I did like the fact that it was very homogeneous. So I would, you wouldn't have strange syntaxes that would take a lot of time to memorize because my memory is not that good. So I prefer to have a regular syntax, which always makes sense and is very predictable. And also the homoiconicity and the, the possibility of writing macros and using those, it seemed very powerful. The potential for it was more than the potential for anything else. And also uh, some of the other languages, uh, just by looking at them, like Java or C++, you can see that they have so many details that you have to keep track of. I didn't really know much. I, 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 did, I knew something. I had already done some programming, but not to that extent. But I would read things online from other pro from people who had, were already programming and also from my intuition, I can see, well, there, are, there is a lot of things to remember to keep track of, so a lot of things that can go wrong in C++ and Java, more in C++. But while in Lisp that didn't seem to apply, it was very natural, almost. And also I thought that for us, one developer using a, a Lisp with metaprogramming and everything that comes with it was very powerful. And also I read... Paul Graham's essays, which pretty much say that. So I thought, well, yes, this is the right way to go. And I still really enjoy it. I do enjoy writing Lisps probably more than any other language. I'm looking at Racket as well. And there is very interesting Lisp, which is um, LFE, uh, Lisp in flavored Erlang, so, which can runs on the Erlang virtual, virtual machine. And that is very interesting as well for me. And you can recycle this same ideas you can recycle the things you already know and you have a completely new language after it's not completely but it's another language and it runs on something else so i think it's a bit of a lingua franca that can run on many platforms that all sounds good and it's interesting to see why people get drawn into certain languages and what about the different languages appeals to them so you said after closure you kind of went on the language hunt and you played with a bunch of different stuff. You got to Elm. You did some Haskell, you said, correct? Yeah. Yeah, well, the, the thing with Haskell is it needs some, I think it needs some mathematical proficiency that I didn't necessarily have already. So for me, it's I, I get stuck. Every once in a while, I, I start again. And I think and now there is this book, which is Haskell Programming from, well, from their, I'll just say their Twitter names, Argomatronic and Bite My App. I think it's a really nice way to get into it because I used to go about it the programmer's way. Oh, I know 10 languages. I'll just read this one like every other language. I'll make a web app or I'll make an iPhone app, which is more complicated. Or I will make something that I already know how to make in this different language. That really didn't work for me with Haskell because the, well, I think I got stuck at the type system many times. Yeah, so I'm, I'm learning it again, this time using this book, which I think is very good for me. I don't know, some maybe other people will be able to learn Haskell in that way just by making a web app. But I think it's very unnecessarily frustrating and it's probably better to for myself to know the underpinnings 
of it. And I also have done some experimenting with Idris, which is another very interesting language dependent type. So that's the Haskell book by for the name the names is Chris Allen Chris and Allen. Julie yeah. Moranuki. And yes. I had them on nineteen talking about some of that stuff and teaching because that's an interesting approach as well because Julie's a non programmer who's learning this and helping to teach it and giving that insight of someone also, who's not, she's a linguist. Yeah. Which I think helps in a way because grammars and type theory are, have quite a few connections. So when you were getting into Haskell, you said you found it mathematical. Was that the mathematical and advanced category theory stuff? Or was that just even the difference that you're coming from a more dynamic language and then you're having to think more that about types as well? one of the problems, yeah. Because I did come from Clojure and other dynamic languages, also Objective-C and JavaScript. I was used to that kind of style. But then when I started doing game development, I actually started to work all in static languages, statically typed languages like C Sharp, Bamboo. So after that, it was somewhat, I got used to it more. And that's also where I started appreciating Elm and type systems in general. I started to see the value of type systems more concretely, which is funny <laughs> because when you're a, a dynamic type person and you read, oh, statically typed systems are so much better, you don't necessarily believe it, as you can see from the money controversies on the internet. But I am a convert. I think it is actually better, even though I do miss uh, Lisps mainly. So I, I'm also taking a look at typed racket, and I hope to find in that the ideal language, both typed and the Lisp. That's what I was wondering was things like the progressive typing, because you mentioned Erlang at the beginning, which has progressive typing with things like Dialyzer. You met, just mentioned typed racket, and then there was the typed closure project that was going on for a while. I'm not sure the status of that. It's I saw something about it, but I didn't actually see the end result. It is going on. I think they're even thinking about uh, dependent types. Okay. I remember Ambrose making an announcement, but I didn't quite get the full catch of what that was. I think Christensen is working on dependent types in Racket now. And he used to help with Idris. Maybe still does. I'm not sure. And so you found that difference. And you've become a convert then? Or at least have found the places where... So what's the balance of when you want the dynamic types and want to work in that dynamic types and then make a change versus th and then be able to think about your types and your contracts and everything else up front? What's that balance for you like after playing in both some Elm and Haskell and getting a, getting into that land, especially Idris, which is super strongly mm -hmm. typed yes. and more powerful type system from what I've heard and what I've seen demoed versus the very dynamic, very... Fluctual, and I can like do whatever with a closure or Lisp or whatever Lisp it may be. What does that balance look for? When do you want the looser typing and I can just pass anything as long as it meets this rough thing versus I want the strong type definition up front and I think about it and I think through that problem? Yeah, I think I would really like the advantages of both, but I can't really have them because optional typing hasn't really panned out yet. So the thing that's easier with dynamic types is experimentation. But then you pay for that because you have to 
do all the work that the Thai system would do for you. So you have to write a lot of tests, even for things that you wouldn't really need to. And then when when refactoring, it's quite more complex that it would need to be in a good statically typed language. So Helm does help me a lot with its type system and it's more friendly, very friendly error messages. While when I do lisps without any typing, I sort of have to do all the work. Or in, in any, even when I do JavaScript, that's I'm not used to <laughs> those kind of error messages that JavaScript does. I really didn't miss that. So yeah, I think there is a definite advantage that you pay for in each case. So for dynamically typed languages, you pay for the spontaneity. So you can have more flow. You can have you can experiment more. You can figure out what you want to do while you're doing it. But then you have to pay for it. You have to take care of the types. And they are still there, even though you're not thinking explicitly about them. They still are a thing that exists. You're sort of ignoring them, but they are there. You're just trusting your brain to do all the work, which you really can't. While with statically typed languages, you can offload some of the work to the type system. And I'm not sure if it's worth... It is worth, I guess, if it's worth on a or in an OP language like C sharp. C sharp gives you some types, but they're not that good once you compare them from what Haskell gives you from with what Elm gives you. They cannot do that many things, so it's a bit of a draw on OOP languages. But for functional programming, I think it's really worth having a stronger type system, at least for myself. That's the conclusion I've come to up to now. But it would still be great if one could have both. So I'm looking at typed tract, and I did look at typed closure, but as you may have seen on the internet, the discussion recently has been, it's quite a bit of work to add it into your own project, and it has some shortcomings that probably there is an intrinsic difficulty in just adding types to a dynamically typed language. It strikes me as a thing that's quite difficult to do if you weren't thinking about it when you design the language. So I think that's probably quite a feat if it can be achieved. I've seen a few papers flying around about adding types, but I don't know more than that. It would be very good if someone could figure out how to add types optionally, but still having the advantage of, and not as known as, of having dynamic dynamic types. Because if you have an optional type system, then you're not checking types when you compile. You're checking types at another time where you... Well, I guess it depends on your implementation, but type closure was like that. You would check types when you told it to. So it wasn't a step that really fit in your workflow. It was something that made you do more work and gave you something back. But it was a bit of a... Yeah, it wasn't as, as clear an advantage as, as it would be good for it to be. So with the typing of Haskell and the experimentation that you said you got from the Lisps and the dynamic, did you find that the, I think it's GHCI, the interactive Haskell shell REPL style development? I haven't used it much, to be honest. I've used it a bit, but it seems a bit unwieldy. I guess I've seen some articles around, but I haven't read them. 
So I haven't really used it to the maximum. I just used it to experiment with a, a specific function that I want to try first, say something like that, instead of using it for building the entire program as I would in Clojure. Okay. And that was kind of what I was getting at was A, if you used it, and B, if you did, was what kind of stuff did you find that that lend, lent back to that ability to experiment? But since you haven't really used it, that's a fair statement. So you messed with Clojure, you messed with Haskell, and I know you said you're doing Elm and Erlang slash Elixir now. So how have you yes. found that migration going from those two different types of functional programming language with two different mindsets and views to yet another functional language which still holds some true scope but takes another completely different approach to how it approaches a problem because Clojure and other Lisps have one set of mind strengths. They have their functional language. Haskell's got a different mindset, still being a functional language, still wanting purity. And then you've got the Erlang and Elixir in there with yet a third different mindset and approach while still being a functional language. How have you found that transition as well? And going between all of these and kind of what did you find about when you started going into Erlang and Elixir? I think the Erlang idea, the basic idea of Erlang, which is having a language that is very resistant to failure, it's genius. <laughs> it does make for a very different experience. So very few other languages actually worry about this thing. They all give it to the programmer to worry about. While in Erlang, a lot of problems are pre-solved, but given that they require a different organization in how you do stuff, in how you organize your code, there are a lot of requirements you have up front. So for example, when you get into Erlang, you have to learn the OTP structure and its principle and how it works. And it's quite specific. And it's very unintuitive if you've never done any distributed programming, I think. I hadn't done any distributed programming before, and I found it quite everything quite unintuitive. But if you have the problems, if you do distributed programming, you have the problems, so you will see what the patterns that brought those solutions. It's supposed to give you a solution straight ahead from the start. It was quite different. Also, Erlang is a bit of a, well, it's got its own virtual machine. So it's a bit of a closed world. You can interface in a few ways, but they're not the usual ways we would use with other languages. And it's a bit like Common Lisp. Common Lisp had this problem while I was writing it, which is it was quite difficult to get it to work with something else because it was sort of taught from the point of view of the Lisp machine. A Lisp machine will give you everything you need, so there is no need to interface with anything else. While on the Erlang side, maybe it's more from actual functionality comes this form. So you need to give this functionality to the programmer and it comes, this is what you have to do. And even if they didn't use Erlang, they will still have to do the same things by themselves. So when you start an Erlang program, it's already distributed by default. And you have a few things, a checklist, almost, I would say, you have to think about before starting any program. So you didn't have to have this server and then you have a supervisor and then they should connect in some ways, which ones are the ones you want. And these are not things as a client developer, as a front-end developer, I would have worried before. So that takes some getting used to. 
I think uh, lang- as a language itself is quite nice. I quite like the syntax, which is prolog syntax. Right? It's okay for me. And it does tend to make you think in the simplest way possible for some reason. I, I think from that syntax comes an incentive into making the functions as clean and as focused as possible just from the structure of the program. And Elixir is very interesting in a way because you do have many, many people which are already familiar with Ruby. And then that gives them an easier way into Erlang. And the virtual machine, which is the real power here, is the same. But I guess if they have never done any functional programming, that might prove quite confusing. And I think Erlang and Elixir specifically in that is an interesting beast. And I want to kind of get your opinion because you've got this background as well, is it almost seems very Ruby syntax, but that's superficial. Yeah, that is superficial. And once you actually get into it, that you start to realize it's actually almost, almost, almost a lisp as well because of the way it does all of its abstract syntax tree and macros under the covers and takes advantage of that abstract syntax tree, which is just Erlang data structures under the covers, and you can actually manipulate those in the same way you get with macros in a lot of lisps. Have you found that to kind of hold true? That Yeah, I thought so as well. But for me, the Ruby syntax is not as natural as the lisp syntax for that kind of things. I mean, it's quite impressive that you can still do all the metaprogramming and things. I guess why, my my line of thought here is why bother using anything other than the most natural syntax for this that gives you the least amount of trouble, really? So in a way, it's impressive what it can be achieved, but... For me, not it's not quite as natural as using a Lisp. Is that what you were meaning, or do you mean something else? No, that's that's good. That's close because I found it was in in the same way that I thought it was impressive. It's the fact that it brings it nicely to a broader population. I I guess is that yeah. A lot of reason the people don't come to Erlang is because of the syntax. You get a lot of that same kind of stuff with Lisp but you can kind of have something that doesn't look quite as intimidating, but still bring the power of a lot of that list style functionality with macros and bring that into and work on the VM. If you aren't actually one of those people who want a Lisp, as you mentioned with list flavored Erlang. Yeah. I think it's a great gateway drug (laughs) to the beam and the beam is quite impressive. So it's all good. It's great actually. for some reason, some languages, some syntaxes, some ways of doing things are more conductive to more popularity. I don't quite understand why. I'm siding here with the least popular languages, but for some reason, the Ruby syntax is terribly popular. There are many, many, many web developers that use it and would use Erlang when they find that they have fit the sweet spot of Ruby, which is, Ruby doesn't scale. I mean, it's quite hard to scale Ruby, I would say, though I haven't direct experience of it. So where they find they can't go where they need to go in Ruby anymore, they can just 
switch to Elixir, and that makes quite a lot of sense. And they're quite good with the Elixir learning materials because it could be quite traumatic experience just to switch from Ruby to Elixir anyway because you have to do all the OTP stuff that you didn't do before, most likely. There is still immutability, however, it's the rest. So there are still new concepts and it is still the same bytecode underneath. Well, one of the things that's interesting from a perspective as well is that the way Jose was able to take advantage of a bunch of the OTP stuff and build stuff on top of that and make it nicer to use, such as agents, where if you just want something that holds the state and that's all it's going to do is you can get away with doing a lot less code by having something that builds on top as a behavior on top of the gen server and hides a lot of that behavior away from you just as someone coming in and just trying to get ramped up and understand OTP and gen servers and everything else. You can have the ability for having easy processes and spawning those off and having those without having a whole bunch of, I guess, mental barrier to trying to understand all of OTP, as you said, when you come in and learn Erlang proper. Yeah. They have been good at making it, at targeting it right, I think. And that's why it's so popular, I guess. So you also mentioned list-flavored Erlang. We've had a couple of just offhand references to it in the past with some guests. I believe I asked about it compared to Joxa with Eric Merritt, and maybe one or two other people have made comments on it. Zishan Lakani in one of the LambdaConf episodes I did recordings there because he gave a presentation on it. So what have you found about LFE and have you actually gotten to play with that as much? Because if you're liking the things that Erlang and the Beam gives you and you like the Lisp, have you gotten a chance to play with LFE? And what have you found about your perspective, if you have? I have had a chance to play with it uh, a bit, not a lot, but I, I really like it <laughs> as it could be <laughs> what some imagined. Well, it's I haven't tried Joxa, so I can't say how it is compared to that, but it does give you anything that Erlang gives you with a Lisp syntax and also a few things that are uh, bonus. No, I haven't gotten that deep, but... So what has your experience been then, if you've been playing with it and getting around it? What kind of stuff have you done, or have you followed some of the tutorials, or what, it, yeah, what does that basically. look like? It's quite natural, if you're, especially if you've already tried Erlang. You're reusing some of the same tools, but the LFE tools, were, I think they were more mature compared to what Erlang had um, until a while ago, which is also the case for the Elixir tools. So you've got a nice tool to start, which is, for me, I, I'm used to Line again. So I'm used to having a great tool to set up projects and build them and do everything that I need. So that's one of this is one of the things which I look at every time I try a new language. So that's that's very well uh, put already. And there is an effort to write structural interpretation of computer programs. Yeah, so there is an effort to write that in LFE with LFE examples, and there's quite a lot of documentation for such a new language. And it is taken care by Verding himself, and he looks quite keen on it. It's like it's his baby, I think. Yeah, I've heard him say that he's a lisper at heart, and that he came back and he wanted to just put it with that power. It seems to be a very, very small community, but the community that's there is very, very excited about it. Yeah, they, there is quite a 
for such a small community, there is quite a lot of documentation, I think, and the quality is high as well. I think what it really misses is maybe some more complex examples, a proof of concept app that really works and it's a bit more complicated that would prove it more, I guess. And I, I think Verding is working on having the macros updated. Yeah, the community is quite lively. Yeah, no, he's been working just because I keep I'm on that on a couple of mailing lists, and the LFE one is one of them. And I see that he puts out pretty decent updates about what he's thinking, how he's planning on doing the macro updates, and getting feedback from others who use it, and just saying, "What do you all think? Is this and is this going to break anything that you all have?" So please test this out and use it, and make sure that this is working as as I think it will. So it seems to be a pretty good steady hand and ownership in the community of making sure that things are easily accessible for anybody who wants to make the jump into it. Yeah, it's, it's super responsive as well, because I had a, there was a small issue with the setup and it was just a, a little bug they had and he answered straight away and fixed it. So that's very good. Yeah, I think they could really use something like Phoenix for Elixir. I think it's the potentially is there, but for some reason, <laughs> but maybe one of the advantages that Elixir has is that they have many web developers that actually make websites, I think, because people converted from Ruby is people used to make websites, which is a bit different from the Erlang main use case, which is people who are making distributed applications. So I find that Elixir has many more libraries that a web developer would use that suits web developers' needs compared to Erlang. And the benefit of those seem to be at least the great interop between all three of the languages on the beam of those uh, that you've mentioned, the LFE, the Erlang, and Elixir. The interop between one and another and using those things is a very nice story. Yeah, you can pretty much mix and match however you want. So I haven't tried mixing the, through the three of them yet, but that should be interesting. I think it's great for Erlang, so for the Erlang language ecosystem because it's just convenient. You can write your programs in a mix or match that suits what you actually want to do. So maybe if you're making something more of a web app, you can use some Elixir, but still have whatever Erlang library you need. And you can also mix in some LFE, if you're like me, prefer to have lisps. And we're getting close to time, but I do want to give us the opportunity for you to talk about some of your work with Elm. We kind of touched on it here and there, but what about Elm have you found is really exciting to you? You said it's less mathematical than Haskell, and you're starting to like the strong typing, but what about Elm is the draw to you, if anything, besides that? Or is it just kind of those two things are the main draw and that you're getting away from using JavaScript and other things for front-end development? So one of the main attractive things about Elm is that it includes a functional reactive programming from the start. So I was mainly interested in functional reactive programming when I tried Elm for the first time. And I did try in Haskell, but it is somewhat more complicated because you have to get Haskell and then you have to get a library and then you have to learn that library. And there is not official way of doing a straightforward way to do that. While in Elm, 
everything is already packaged, the key decisions are made for you. So you pretty much can just try Elm from the website, from the trial website. And just from there, you can already try functional reactive programming. So that I think that is a very low barrier to entry for actually making use of it in production. I'm interested in functional reactive programming because I've done games, I've done UIs, and I thought I've been exposed to how object-oriented programming is not, after all, that good for those kind of applications. And I think functional reactive can be better. The popularity, the enduring popularity, I would say, of reactive libraries, even in imperative languages, are a testament to the fact that, as it is, it's, it's a very good way to do UIs and to do interactive programs, which have some certain requirements. So when I started with it, it gave me an easy way to get started with FRP. And then it's got a rather gradual learning curve because Evan is really attentive to not exposing people over much with stuff that may be scary. So it won't give you monads, first thing, which is one of the things that are maybe hard in Haskell. The first program, if you want to have any program which has a, an output, you need to have at least encountered the I.O. monad. And that might be a bit too much at the very start. So it's very, it gives a lot of thought to what concepts the newbie programmer should be exposed to and to try to keep the overwhelm factor very low, as low as possible. So those are two factors for Elm. And then since it does, I tried to make a game with it first, which was a game jam game. It was a... Um, a roguelike, right? And I never really finished it because it uh, was like two days roguelike in my case. I didn't spend all the seven days on it. And I was learning Elm as I went along. But even just in those two days, I could make a working environment and the character and collisions without even knowing the language and not having been exposed much to statically typed functional languages before. So I thought it was pretty quick for such a different language compared to my own experience. And it also showed to me that functional reactive programming, especially in the declination that Elm uses, is probably a good fit for games, which is my end game here. I would really like functional languages to be used in games, in commercial games, which is a bit of a hard sell because, as you know, Commercial games tend to be written in C++ if they are AAA. Now Unity is taking a lot of the market that's not AAA. So that's C-sharp, but still it's still the same way of doing things fundamentally. And having debugged also many mutation mutation bugs, and having spent so many hours debugging those, I thought one thing that games needed was to get out of this imperative box and started to use functional programming. But there is a lot of functional programming around, and the specific subset that Elm uses, I think, is very right for games. So my end game would be finding a way for everyone to use statically typed functional programming languages with functional reactive libraries to make games with that, proper commercial games. There are a few efforts for making games with Haskell. That all, some use FRP, I'm not sure all of them. Elise 
Hoart, if I pronounce it right, as a book out on Linpub for it. And I think it's Kira Studios and they make Android games, some Android games with Asuka and they have open source some of the libraries. But it's still 2D games mainly. And it's not really the point of view from which the game industry comes. So the game industry has a bit of a different point of view where maybe in outside of it, maintainability is a bit more taken into account. I've seen that functional language is a bit of an easier sell to say web developers or people in the enterprise. They can see that ease of refactoring is something that helps, that has a value, for example. But in games, bigger studios, it's mainly performance, performance, performance. That's what they're thinking about. And they are pretty stoic as well. So if you give them 20 hours of debugging mutable state, they will take 20 hours of debugging mutable states, which I'm not sure I can take anymore. So I think unless someone does something about it, we will be stuck there forever, which is why I started my effort of learning statically typed functional programming languages and try to make them fit what I need for games. It's a bit of a long road, I think. It will be a long road for me. But Elm is as ideal as I can imagine a language for that. And it would be interesting to see it ported to some different platforms, so for it not to be tied with the web platform, but to be able to compile it natively, or maybe for the Beam, another Erlang platform language. That would be cool, actually. So that's something I'm looking forward to, hopefully. It will find its way on the roadmap at some point. So was that your first exposure to functional reactive programming too, more in depth? Or had you looked into it and understood it before you got into Elm? I tried something in Ascal, some libraries, but, and I had used reactive libraries in C Sharp and others, JavaScript probably. But reactive, I think it doesn't make as much sense in JavaScript, say, or in C-sharp, than it makes in a proper functional language. So it was the, the exposure that really did it for me. And that's where I understood that it's a very good, call it strategy for UIs and for games code as well. It's interesting to get why people choose and what they saw that makes it spark a language and just to know kind of those draws about the language and the fact that the functional reactive style drew you in, but the fact that Evan has made the on-ramp and getting started of Elm and has worked to try and make that more accessible to the community has only helped coming in and not throwing it away as well and say, yeah, there's some interesting ideas here, but it's just too much to get set up and going with and feel like I've got my first win. So I'm just going to kind of stop before I get started. Yes, that's. I think that happens a lot, actually. So is there anything we haven't covered that we should be making mention to? I want to give you a time a little bit to bring up any other topics that we haven't covered that you think we need to dig into before we start wrapping up the call. I think it's good as far as topics goes. So is there anything you want to plug? You've been doing some conference talks. You can find them on your site at lambdacat.com, right? References? Yeah, yeah. So do you have any upcoming appearances? Actually, they are on, on Doppio Slash. Okay, so we'll 
Yeah, we'll put that site. We'll put your sites in the show notes so people can go find your talks. But do you have any other upcoming talks or appearances that you're coming or just anything you're involved with that you want people to know about? This year, I only know about Cambridge TDD Nights. I should talk about Elm on Julie the 6th. So that's one of those. It's Cambridge TDD Developer, Developer, Developer Nights. And that will be an introduction to Elm. And I also write, let's say, a blog or a really whatever I'm working on website about functional programming, which is lambdacat.com. And I've been putting in it pretty much anything I'm interested in, which makes from, I guess, interesting but somewhat unfocused reading. <laughs> I'm trying to put together some tips for Elm, especially coming from OOP. So I'll probably publish them on the near future on Lambda Cat. And I really want to do more IDRIS if possible. Yeah, that would be good. So before we get to where else they can find you online, do you have a call to action for anybody listening that you want them to go out and after listening to this episode, go out and check out or do or Yeah, there is one video I made for Lambda Cat, which is the time travel in the bugger for her for um and it I think that's if you, if someone has never seen time traveling the buggers, which are not that common, so that's quite easy for someone never to have seen them. I think that's a very interesting thing to look at. And even though it might possibly not work at the moment, I'm not sure if it works, if a reactor works now at this specific point in time, exactly as I showed it, because that was uh, 0.15. We're still in zero point numbers, so everything is a bit in flux. But yeah, I think that's what I would like everyone to do, to take a look at the Elm Reactor video on Lambda Cat. And I'll put that link in the show notes as well. So where else? You mentioned Lambda Cat. You mentioned your blog. And I'll get those links in the show notes. Is there anywhere else that people can find you and keep up with you online? What's the best places for people to track you down? Twitter. So at slash on Twitter and... Yeah, Lambda Cat now mainly, but I still have something on wslash.com, which is my my personal stuff, like the talks. That's blog wslash.com, and that's where people can find the games I've made and the talks I did. Something about me, why Lambda Cat is all about functional programming, so I don't generally put anything that's just about me in there. I'll get those all added to the show notes so people can find out more and follow along with those and get easy access. Cool. I'd like to give a giant thank you to David Belcher for the logo. And once again, thank you very much, Claudia, for taking your time and joining me today. It was a pleasure talking with you. It was a pleasure talking with you. Thank you very much for having me. You're welcome. Thank you for being a guest. Until next time, this has been Functional Geekery.